Bob will pray for us. Thank you. Dear Lord, thank you that we can gather and hear your word. <laughs> we pray for Eric that you bring healing to his voice so that he can use it to teach us and according to the gifting that you've given him. Thank you, Lord, for this Sunday. Pray that you be with us. We look forward to your celebrating your supper today. And may we learn about your sovereignty as we study under Pastor Eric. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Bob. I had to get one cough out of the way there. Well, it's good to see everybody. We're in this, uh, in the midst of a section where we're talking about the depravity of man. And I wanted to begin by talking about two different analogies that have to do with how we understand the depravity of man as evangelicals. And I think these two analogies will help illustrate what the issue is and how we can understand predestination and election from understanding the depravity of man. The first analogy is the common held analogy regarding salvation and the predicament of sinners held by most evangelicals today. And that is most evangelicals think of all people as being in like a shipwreck. That is, they're all in the ocean and they're flailing about and they're about to be lost. But Jesus comes by in the lifeboat and if they will reach up, he will reach down and pull them into the boat and save them. And of course, the reaching up is by faith. That's the average conception that most evangelicals have of salvation. What I would submit to you is that the proper analogy is that, yes, there's been a shipwreck. Every human being, as it were, is on a grand cosmic Titanic. But the truth of it revealed in Scripture is it's not that we're drowning and flailing in the water, but every human being is already drowned and their bodies are dead corpses spiritually in the water. And they can do nothing to reach up as the lifeboat of Christ comes by. But instead, Christ is the one who sovereignly reaches down, breathes the new life of belief into them, and pulls them into the rescue boat. That's the proper conception of salvation. And it shows that salvation is completely of God. And therefore, who gets all the glory for salvation is God himself. Now, with that understanding, I think... Oh, I'm sorry, Bob. Go ahead. Well, I'm tr- I'll try to spell you now and then to save your voice. Thank you. Thank you. There's, a, there's another point that has a good analogy. Yeah. And here's another way that it fails, but it's typical. <clears throat> and it's a, in, in the case of somebody on a Titanic, everyone was motivated to get into a life raft or grab a flotation device. Right. In other words, once the boat, boat's going down and you're in the water, 100% of the people, unless they were suicidal, wanted to be saved. Yeah. Okay? Because they knew they were going to the bottom of the sea and they're going to die, so right. they're all motivated. Right. Where the analogy fails is that sinners in our world don't believe that they're dying. And they're not motivated. If the life ref means becoming a Christian, serving Christ, and associating with born-again Christians, they say, no, thank you. That's nonsense. I don't want it. Yeah. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to go to church and sing hymns. And I don't want the moral law of God. So the, the analogy fails because 
They didn't want the, the people lifetime. in the water all want out. Yeah. But the people that are lost in the world don't all want to be Christian. Yeah. They're not all motivated. So it's a fake and <coughs> analogy, or it's an inappropriate analogy. Amen. And it's been used for decades and decades. Yeah. And because watered-down pop evangelicalism doesn't understand the doctrine of human depravity and they don't believe sinners are actually dead, then the self-help stuff comes in. And they might say, well, all you got to do is get in the lifeboat. Hmm. But it's still something that you do. Amen. And in the, in the real world on the Titanic, they're, they're, they're fighting each other about who got in and who got thrown <laughs> back in the lake. Right. People aren't fighting to be evangelical Christians. Right. Nor do they have to. Yeah. Because Jesus says, whosoever comes to me, I'll, you know, yeah, I'll no way cast, cast out. out. Amen. He's not going to throw you out of the lifeboat. Yeah, amen. So the real issue is who knows that they're lost. And according to Luther in the bondage of the will, it's the law that awakens the, yes. them to the reality of their loss of sinful condition. Amen. Well said, Bob. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, now, w- one thing I left off with last time is notice the different positions. The Pelagian, the Pelagian position, remember, there's no guilt from Adam. There's no moral corruption accrued from Adam. And we are spiritually alive. So Pelagius argued that when God commands us to believe, we have the ability to believe. When co- God commands us not to sin, we have the ability not to sin. There was nothing accrued from Adam whatsoever. Arminius didn't believe that. He did believe that, in fact, there was some moral corruption. Ironically, he didn't believe that we were guilty because of what Adam did, but because of the sins that we committed. Now, we as evangelicals who rightly understand the Bible will say, yes, we're also guilty for the sins we commit, but we're also guilty, as I'm going to prove to you in Romans 5, from the sin of Adam. Jacob Arminius did not believe that. But notice whether it's alive, the extent of the moral corruption, or merely weakened, the idea is that human beings still have the ability, even after the fall, to reach up and grab onto God by faith. Now, what I'm going to show you are the positions now that show the extent of the corruption is such that we are dead. And that's what I think the biblical position clearly is. I'll show you evidence of that. So let's begin with the realist position. This was the position of Augustine. And for many generations, it was the official position of those who really took the Bible seriously. This was the position of Jonathan Edwards. Now, what is the realist position? Well, let me read to you the words of Charles Hodge. He has a good explanation of it. Listen to what he says. He says this, quote, Others again adopt the realist theory of the fall of man and teach that as a generic humanity existed whole and entire in the persons of Adam and Eve, their sin was the sin of the entire race, the same numerical, rational, and voluntary substance which acted in our first parents, having been communicated to us, their act was as truly and properly our act being the act of our reason and will 
as it was their act. So let me just stop there. <clears throat> the best way to understand the realist position, I think, is the analogy that Jonathan Edwards gave, which was the acorn. The acorn analogy is that if you think of an acorn, the acorn is not yet an oak tree, but everything that makes an oak tree, an oak tree is present in it. In the same way, you and I were not bodily alive in Adam, but we were there like an acorn is, has everything that an oak tree is going to be. You and I were there with Adam. So you and I really sinned in the loins of Adam when he sinned. Now, what I'm going to show you is this is a misreading of Romans 5.12. Augustine took a prepositional phrase and he said, in whom? I'll show you that that's not the best rendering. Okay, that's how he got it wrong. But let me continue with this quote from Hodge. He says, quote, the sin of Adam is imputed to us. And he says, we literally sinned in Adam. Consequently, the guilt of that sin is our personal guilt and the consequent corruption of nature is the effect of our own voluntary act, unquote. Now, let me give you a few problems with the realist view. The one thing I'm really appreciative of is they believe that, yes, we're dead in our sins. So notice the extent of the corruption accrued from Adam, that we're dead. We're dead spiritually, therefore we can do nothing pleasing to God. How ultimately do you please God? By faith. We can't come to faith apart from the regenerative power of God. But let me give you a few problems with this view. Number one, this view requires an unlikely reading of Romans 5.12. And I'm going to show you that it's very unlikely Augustine's reading of Romans 5.12. That's number one. Number two, it requires a material nature of the human soul. Now, why would that be? Because you and I have to be literally with Adam and our soul, therefore, has to be something that's generated from Adam. Third, the question should arise, if Adam, if you and I were really there when he sinned in the, in the garden, initially, what about all of his other sins? In other words, Adam sinned more than once. Are they also accrued to us? Or how about his descendants? Are they accrued to us? So there's some gaps in the realist theory. Now, let me give you another theory. This is called the seminal theory. Some think that this is synonymous with the realist theory, but here's the difference. Seminal is more of a genetic issue, that you and I are genetically distorted from the fall. And it's not that you and I were really, as the realistic view states, there in Adam, like an acorn has all the components of the oak tree. But the seminal view says that our corrupted nature comes genetically. Okay? So let me just read to you the seminal view. <clears throat> the problem with the seminal view, oh, let me t talk about the problem with it. One of the big problems with it is called the mediated imputation. So in the realist view, the sin nature of Adam is immediately credited to our account. In the seminal view, it is mediated through our parents. So it comes, for example, my sin nature would come from my mom and dad genetically. Okay, the problem with that view is it doesn't encapsulate what Paul talks about in Romans 5. Paul in Romans chapter 5, as I will show you, is not talking about genetics. He's talking about imputation. When Adam sinned, the whole human race sinned. We became sinners because you and I were spiritually dead in Adam. 
So the issue is imputation, which is immediate when Adam sinned, you and I sinned, but it's not mediated through our parents. Now, let me give you the view that I think is biblical. This is the federal view. The federal view says we had a first representative in the garden. And the first representative, Adam, he failed. He failed miserably. He sinned. And therefore, because he, our first representative, failed, his sin was credited to our account. Uh, Bob and I were just talking about this prior to the class. Later in history, who becomes God's son? Israel does. And Israel goes into the wilderness. And what happens in the 40 years? Do they succeed majestically in great obedience? No, they fail miserably, don't they? So Jesus comes on the scene of history. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and he does succeed where Israel failed. Why? Because he's the faithful son. This is the point in Romans 5, as you're going to see, that just as our first representative failed, our new representative, the new Adam, Jesus, succeeded, and therefore his righteousness could be credited to our account. If you and I do not like the idea that God credits Adam's sin to us, well, then you and I can't like the fact that God credits credits Christ's righteousness to us. Praise be to God that he does work by imputation because if he did not, you and I sin in and of our own accord, you and I could never be saved. We could never have a righteousness that is clothed upon us that enables us to be right with God. Yes, Eric. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know where I read this. This is where it's dangerous to read a lot. Yeah. But um, that's what you're saying is very consistent. It's totally consistent with Hebraic thought. Yeah. The idea of, uh, of a representative and the idea of sonship being, um, it's not exactly inherited, which, which is what the uh, seminal view would be, but the uh, federal that's very consistent, I think, and, and I wish I could tell you where I read this, but it was in a, you know, something that discussed, you know, the Hebraic uh, perspective on yeah, things, absolutely. which we need to use. Yeah, um, one example that Bob has talked about this quite often is, um, remember, Bob, you're talking about like the son of perdition. Well, why, why are some people called the son of perdition like Judas or the, the future Antichrist? Well, because it means they're characterized by, or a son of righteousness means they're characterized by that. And you're exactly right. You and I, being in Adam, are characterized by his sin because we're spiritually dead like he became. So absolutely, there's a corporate solidarity that's absolutely implied in the scriptures in that way. Yes, Ryan. Yeah, maybe not to get too distracted, but with what Eric said <laughs> with the sonship in Hebraic, you know, you think of the Jews at the time said that they were sons of Abraham. Yes. And that seemed very genetic to them. And, you know, Christ and Paul kind of take that to a spiritual sense. And, well, you're not true descendants, but only those who believe are descendants. Well said, Ryan. And so, yes, they're boasting in being sons and daughters of Abraham. Like even in John chapter 8, when Jesus is telling them, no, you're a slave to sin, they're saying, we're, we're not slaves of anybody. We're not slaves to anything. We're sons and daughters of Abraham. But what's interesting is to be a true son of Abraham, characterized by Abraham, you have to have faith like he did, and they did not. And that's why they were in their slavery, absolutely. So true sonship comes from being like the one you're attached to or associated with. 
And therefore, if you're a true son of Abraham, you have faith like he does. So absolutely well, well stated. Now, one thing I want to show you just real quickly, I want you to turn to a couple of passages in the Old Testament itself where it shows, yes, every human being is born in sin. Okay, so one of the questions I think we have to wrestle with is, are you and I sinners because we sin, or do you and I sin because we're born sinners? I think it's the latter. Now, let me give you some evidence to suggest this and to show you that we're on the right track with this federal headship view. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 51, 3 through 5. Psalm 51, 3 through 5. Here, as you turn to it, David is repenting for his sins with Bathsheba. Remember, he had sinned grievously against the Lord. He sent Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, to the front to have him killed so that he could take another man's wife. So this is very grievous sin. But listen to his repentance recorded here in Psalm 51. What it demonstrates, number one, is David knew the sin was his alone. He doesn't push it off. The woman made me do it or anything else. No, it's on him. That's proper repentance. But he also acknowledges that he's a wretched sinner from birth. Very important for our doctrine of original sin. Psalm 51, 3 through 5. Verse 3, David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now listen to how he confesses. He says, Against you, that's God. You only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now notice that he was conceived in sin. Now, what did you do at conception? Did you do anything good or bad that you're aware of in the womb? No. So his whole point is that he was born and even conceived with a sin nature right from the womb. That's the doctrine of original sin. Paul builds on that, not only in Romans 5, but also in Romans 3, where he says that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after him, not one. If there's none who seeks after God, well, that seems to be the spiritual death that you and I are talking about. Let me show you another one that David wrote, Psalm 58.3. Please turn your Bibles there. Psalm 58, 3. I'm sorry, what was it again? I'm sorry, Psalm uh, 58, 3. <clears throat> and I'm just showing you that even the Old Testament had a very robust understanding of the doctrine of original sin. And this is just a couple of examples. <clears throat> Psalm 58, 3. It says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. So notice, the sin nature is such that people are wicked even in the womb. Why? Because they're born dead sinners in Adam. Now, if you look on the screen, at the end of the day, I'm not so concerned what position you hold if you hold a position below the line. If you're a realist, seminalist, federalist, I'm a federalist. I think that's the best um, evidence. But the big issue that I want you to see is everything below the line correctly sees human beings as spiritually dead in Adam. That is a huge deal. Because those who believe that we're merely weakened in our spiritual state believe that human beings in and of their own power have the ability to believe. 
what I'm going to show you is that's not possible. If it's not possible to believe on your own power, then salvation is all from God. That's the point. And that's why I think, again, total depravity, the depravity of humankind, really shows the profundity of the doctrine of election. Let me share a little logic with you. You don't have this in your PowerPoint. I kind of added this to this a few weeks ago. But I want to share with you a couple of uh, syllogisms. The first is what's called a categorical syllogism. And I'll explain why I think these are powerful. And I'm going to show you why understanding the doctrine of total depravity is so important. Let me guess, begin with a premise. Premise one is those who are spiritually dead cannot believe. That's premise one. Okay, now I'm going to show you where that comes from the Bible. Premise two, all people are spiritually dead. That's premise two. The conclusion, therefore, all people cannot believe, left to their own devices. Now, let me explain why I think it's powerful to put things in a categorical syllogism. There are seven tests to tell whether a categorical syllogism is in valid form. I tested this. I've taught logic classes before. This is in valid form. Here's why it's important. If you have a categorical syllogism that's in valid form and the premises are true, the conclusion is necessarily true. Now, it could be true if it's in valid form and the premises are true, the conclusion is a necessary conclusion. So what this does then is it enables us to focus on the issues Let's look at premise one. Are the premises, in fact, biblical? That's all we have to argue. If the premises are true from the Bible, the conclusion necessarily follows. So let's take the premise one. Those who are spiritually dead cannot believe. Is this true biblically? Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to John 6.44. And uh, Brian, would you mind reading John 6.44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, so does everyone see there in John 6, 44, the term can? Um, I don't know if you remember, I've used this analogy before, but years ago when I was in grade school, we always had to raise our hands to go to the bathroom. The, the teacher didn't want chaos in the classroom. So I remember raising my hand, I'd have to go as a little kid, and I'd ask the teacher, can I go to the bathroom? And they would say, I don't know, can you? (laughs) And what they were talking about was ability, and they were trying to have us differentiate what we should ask, and the question is, may I go to the bathroom? Okay, so may has to do with permission, can has to do with ability. The English version here rightly renders it can. The issue is that Jesus is not saying no one has the permission to come to me unless the Father draws him. He's saying no one has the ability. The term that's used in Greek is dunamis. It literally is the term where we have the the term from dynamite. So you could literally render it, no one has the power or the ability to come to me unless the Father draws him. Okay? So let's think about that for a moment. If you and I were not spiritually dead, wouldn't it be the case then that you and I would have the ability to come to Jesus? 
Well, certainly we would. Okay, so what does this allude to? It alludes to the spiritual death that we were just talking about. Okay, now I won't turn to this because last week we read this, but remember last week we looked at Matthew 19, the, the story with the rich man. Remember, he would not trust in Jesus. He would not divorce himself of his riches, and he went his own way. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The disciples perceiving the impossibility of that say, well, then how is it possible for anyone to be saved? And what does Jesus say? He says, with man, it is impossible. Again, the term dunamis, there's no ability. But with God, all things, even, even including salvation, all things are possible. Okay, so those two passages show us, in my opinion, and we'll show others as we proceed, we're on the right footing in premise one. Premise one is true. I'm sorry, Brian, you got something. Real quick, that, that's a fallacy that I hear a lot from people when they say, well, I'm a real spiritual person. And uh, they, they, uh, they may be spiritual, but it's the wrong spirit. Amen. Well said. Absolutely. In Romans 1, it describes what spiritual people are like. And they end up worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. They become idolaters. So apart from regeneration, apart from faith in Christ, we're all idolaters. Absolutely. Okay, let's take premise two. All people are spiritually dead. Is this in fact the case? Well, I want to have you turn your Bibles. Remember, we're going to show you this in the next slide in Romans 5.12. But I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans 8, 8 through 9. Turn your Bibles to Romans 8, 8 through 9. And as you're turning there, we'll take a question or comment from Paul. Okay, in John, just above where you read. Yes. Uh, in 44, up in 37, he says, all that, the Father, uh, all that the Father gives me. No, wait a minute. Oh, goodness me, I just lost it. Anyway, uh, Whoever comes to me, yeah, 37, that's right. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Yes. So um, when it says whoever comes to me, I think the uh, people who feel that we're just weakened means we could come to him. But I'm right. thinking whatever, uh, I, I feel that whoever comes to me comes to me to, to repent. The yep. Father draws. Read it again slowly, Paul, and read the beginning of it, the first yeah, part of right. it. All that the Father gives me. Stop right there. All that the Father gives me. So every human being that the Father gives will come unto Jesus. That's affirming exactly the doctrine we're talking about. In verse 44, it's no one can unless what? The Father draws. So in verse 37, Jesus is talking about those that the Father has drawn but it's only those that end up coming to Christ. And notice, as Bob has mentioned numerous times in the beginning of our message, Jesus will by no wise cast them out. So Jesus isn't in the business of anyone who comes to faith in him saying, nope, you're not part of the elect. That's not how it works. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he receives you to himself. The point is, only the elect will come to faith because they're spiritually dead. What's very interesting is if you put John 6.37 and 44 together, first of all, it refutes universalism, okay? Because it's all those who come, all those who are drawn by the Father, 
And it also refutes the fact that there's going to be, some people believe, well, you know, maybe nobody will be saved. Well, that refutes it because there will be some that indeed will be saved. Why? Because the Father has given them to the Son. So absolutely. Yeah. Now, I'm going to have you turn to Romans 8, 8 through 9. And notice what it says. It says, and those who are in the flesh, this is verse 8, cannot please God. Okay, so let's just stop there for a moment. Those who are in the flesh, what does it mean to be in the flesh? Well, this is the natural state of every human being from the womb. Just as David said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. What do you have to do to be in the flesh? You have to be born into this world. Okay, you're born once, you're in the flesh. How can you be in the spirit? You have to be born again by the power of the Spirit. Okay, so notice the contrast that Paul gives here. Romans 8, 9, he says, however, he's talking to believers, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So notice how the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is synonymous here with the Spirit of Christ. So what is Paul contrasting? He's contrasting two different spheres, The first sphere is the sphere of the flesh. And everyone born into this world is part of that. And guess what? If you're part of that realm, that sphere, and every person is born into it, you cannot please God. Now, according to Hebrews 11.6, how is the only way that you and I can please God? How can we be pleasing to God? It's by faith. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, The only way that any of us can have faith is to be found in the Spirit, meaning we've been regenerated. So the point is everyone left to their own devices is in the flesh, and they can do nothing pleasing to God. Is that not saying then that all people are spiritually dead? Again, implied left to their own devices. Yes. So now what we've done is we've affirmed premise one and premise two are true from the Scriptures. Therefore, what? The conclusion is a necessary one left our own devices, all people cannot believe. All right? Now, let me give you what's called a hypothetical syllogism. This is an if this, then that. If someone believes, then they are regenerated. All right? So, if someone actually believes in Jesus, it's not because they're able to do it, it's because they've been regenerated by the Spirit. Well, from Scripture, we know some do believe, therefore what? Some are regenerated. That's our conclusion. Okay, so all I did is I affirmed the antecedent, right? Which is valid. So let's look at our premises again. If someone believes they are regenerated, is that true? Well, let's turn our Bibles, first of all, to John 3, verses 1 through 8. Is it required for us to be regenerated in order to believe. I'm going to show you that's exactly what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3. It's only those who are regenerated, regenerated by the Spirit that can believe. Um, would somebody else uh, mind reading the... Eric, would you mind reading the text? Um, do you have your... Oh, I'm sorry, Carly's got the... Um, does somebody want to read? Scott, thank you. John 3, we'll start in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay, so stop there for just a second, Scott. So notice the setting. This Pharisee comes by night. And at, in John, in the Gospel of John, night is often um, synonymous with that which is um, associated with unbelief. Okay, so right away, even in the setting here, we're seeing that Nicodemus, he should understand who Jesus is, but he comes in unbelief, at least initially. All right, so th- this is the setting that we're seeing. So notice here now, Jesus answered to him in John 3, 3. Go ahead. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, so stop there. Notice the condition. The only way you're going to see the kingdom of God is if you're literally born from above. Okay, so let's take that into our analogy with in the spirit or in the flesh. What do you have to be in the flesh? You have to be born once. But to be found in the spirit, to be found in Christ, you have to be born from above. That's regeneration. Now, you're going to see him use water, and I'll explain why he does that. So continue on. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Continue. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so we'll just stop there. So Jesus, so Nicodemus doesn't understand the illustration. He thinks he's, Jesus is talking about a man entering into his mother womb, mother's womb physically a second time. Jesus isn't talking about that. So now notice here in verse 5, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he can enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me explain what Catholics do with that. They see the reference to water and they say, aha, this must be water baptism. Okay, so this is why they believe in baptismal regeneration. If you baptize someone, they're automatically saved. And then as soon as they sin, they lose their salvation. But can Jesus possibly be talking about water baptism here? No. Now, how do we know that? Because you can control that. We could baptize every single person. We can control that. But notice what he's, Jesus is going to talk about is something that you can control. It's the work of the Spirit. Continue reading, uh, Scott. Verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it, listed, where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So notice the power of verse 8. Thank you, Scott. Notice the power of verse 8. The analogy is being born from above and the work of the Spirit, it's like that of the wind. How many in here can control the wind? Do you know meteorologists can't control the wind? If you're angry about a windy windy day, don't blame your local meteorologist. We can't control that. 
Jesus says, so it is with the work of the Spirit. So therefore, water baptism is out because you and I can get a baptismal font and we can control that. We can bring every infant, we can bring every adult and we can dunk and we can sprinkle away. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's the work of the Spirit. Now, why is he talking about water? Because God had promised in the prophets that one day he would pour out his Spirit. We see that in Joel 2.31. In fact, Jesus here in John 3.5, when he says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's referring back to Ezekiel 36.25. Could somebody read Ezekiel 36.25? Brian, could you read that for us? Everyone turn your Bibles or at least listen to Ezekiel 36.25. This is the reference Jesus is alluding to. It's not talking about baptismal regeneration. He's talking about the work of the Spirit who regenerates some, enabling them to believe. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. There, there's this beautiful reference that God is going to pour clean water upon them. Yeah, thank you. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Okay, so why does he have to remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh? The heart of flesh isn't a sinful one in the sense of fleshly sin. It's the idea of a responsive heart. The heart of stone is a heart that cannot respond to the things of God. Remember, as early as Deuteronomy in the law, God commanded the Israelites to circumcise their heart. Could they do that? No. So much so that later in Deuteronomy, God says, I will circumcise your heart. So this is the great promise. So that's the reference. It's the reference that God is going to sprinkle his people clean as he pours his spirit upon them. Yes, Bob. Likewise, in Ezekiel, he said earlier, make yourself a new heart. And they can't do it. They can't do it. And so, um, by the way, Mike told me, Mike Kaufman, that there's a new translation of bondage of the will that's easier to read. Oh, good. Is that right? That's right. I have the old one. Okay. You have a new one. Okay, somebody did that. Somebody created a new translation, so don't be scared away. But Luther talks about that constantly. Yes. Why command somebody to make themselves a new heart, says the Arminian, followers of Jacob Arminius, if they don't have the power to do it? That's the question they always ask. They always say, God will only command what we already have the power to do. Well, how do they know that? Well, because they say he has to be that way, otherwise they don't think he's fair. So you have theologians telling God how he has to be who aren't willing to listen to God tell us how he really is. Yes. Okay? And I've debated them. They won't listen to anything. Talk about hard-hearted or (laughs) hard-headed. The thing you said about David. Yes. And said to my mother, you know what they say? No. David's mother was more sinful than most. Oh. It's not about David's sin nature. (laughs) It's about his mother. Literally, that's what they say. They won't listen to anything. Uh, None seek after God. You know what they say? No. I've debated them. Oh, you've got to take that literally because the Bible does say some people seek God. So Paul, when he said none seek after God, didn't really mean it. 
Uh, he cited, I believe, the yeah. scripture. And so they missed the whole point. If you just get the point of the five solas, you won't run into that problem. When he says circumcise your heart, you can't do it. Make yourself a new heart, you can't do it. Seek after God, you won't do it. But the command, and Luther's right, and I'm agreeing with him on this, is designed to bring forth what he calls a lightning bolt from God. Hmm. And the lightning bolt from heaven strikes, Amen. and the wretched sinner realizes that he or she cannot. I don't seek God. I don't live for God. I don't have a new heart. My heart is full of darkness. I'm always sinning. I'm always failing. And according to God's word, I'm lost and there's no hope for me. What am I going to be able to do? That's the lightning bolt from heaven. And then when you get to the bottom of yourself and you know you can't do anything, comes the balm of the gospel that says Jesus Christ did it all for us. Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. And the new heart comes from God. The new heart is given as a gift. And so if we just get it right, it's not even difficult. It's not even confusing. But the reason people won't listen to the gospel is because human reason and philosophy and sentimentality is more important to them than what the Word of God actually says. Amen, amen. Yeah, amen. Well, thank you, Bob. It's too early for me to preach. (laughs) Thank you. Now, let me give you another corroborating verse. So not only does Jesus say you have to be regenerated by the Spirit, that's what he's talking about in John 3. Let me show you where Paul explicitly says it as well. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, 3. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. So Paul here is going to teach exactly what Jesus just taught in John 3, verses 1 through 8. Paul, again, an apostle who speaks the very words of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Notice Paul says there, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus as accursed. And no one can say, again, there's ability, No one has the ability to say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Does everyone see that? So again, the only way that you can ever trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, calling upon his name, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what Jesus said. So let's take that then to our first premise. If someone believes, then they are regenerated by the Spirit. Well, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Okay, now let's take our second premise. I'm going to affirm the antecedent some do believe. Where do we get that from Scripture? Well, remember in Matthew 7, 14, let me give you a simple passage. Jesus talks about the narrow path that leads to salvation and few find it, but the broad path that leads to destruction, many enter through it. But notice the narrow path, few do find it, don't they? So Jesus right there affirms in Matthew 7, 14, oh yes, there are going to be people who do believe. Okay, so our two premises are therefore true. Therefore, the conclusion is a necessary one. Some are regenerated. Now, why am I laboring this point? Because I want you to see the logic of total depravity, the all versus the some. All people cannot believe left to their own devices. But 
some are regenerated, and therefore they do believe. Now, why is that? Because they chose to be regenerated? No, they can't do that. They can't believe. They can't do anything. It's because God has chosen to pour his grace upon them. So that's why, to me, total depravity is really what makes sense of election. If God has not chosen to bestow his gracious power upon some, we would all be left in this condition and lost. But because this is true, some are regenerated, which the Bible affirms, God is gracious to some, and it's only his doing. Okay, so with that, let's start laying out the doctrine of total depravity from Romans 5.12. And what I'm going to show you is in Romans 5.12 all the way to verse 19, Here's, uh, if you want to write a heading down, this passage is about two different representatives. You're either in Adam and therefore you're spiritually dead, a slave to sin and death, or you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore you're a slave to righteousness and you have eternal life. But if I were to summarize what Paul is saying in Romans 5.12, he's talking here about where spiritual death came from. Let me lay out my case for you. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man, talking about Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Notice our NASB says, because all sinned. Okay, now I'm going to take issue with our English translations where it says because. And I'm going to show you good evidence from the scriptures why we should take issue with that because. But let me lay out the logic of the text. Here's how I understand the text from the Greek. First of all, Paul is saying sin entered the world through one man. So we see that right here. Through the one man, sin entered into the world. Okay, no problem there. Point B, death came through sin. Does everyone see that? Death through sin. Okay, so he also says death spread to all, all men. Death spread to all men. Does everyone see that? But here there's a preposition, epi, and a relative pronoun, ho. So there's two words, epi, ho, that are put together, f, ho. And it's rendered by our English versions because. And I'm saying I disagree with that. Here's how I would render it. I would render it saying this, death spread to all men on the basis of which all sin. Okay, now let me explain why I believe that. This is a very literal rendering of the Greek. Okay, first of all, in the way our English versions have it, death comes as a result of sin. Okay, why did death spread to all men? Well, because all sin. But if I'm correct, our English versions should be rendered this way, on the basis of which sin came as a result of spiritual death. That's Paul's point. Why is it that we sin? It's on the basis of which we're spiritually dead. Does everyone see that? Because we're spiritually dead... That's exactly right. In other words, the reason all sin is because we're spiritually dead in Adam. Okay, so that's what I'm claiming it says. All right? Now, let me give you some evidence as to why this is. I have five strands of evidence. First of all, let me just get my pointer out of here. There we are. First of all, I want you to understand that in Romans 5, 12 through 19, death is attributed to Adam. 
In fact, five times it's attributed to him. So where does spiritual death come from? It comes from Adam. So why do you and I sin? Because we're dead in Adam. We're dead in our transgressions. That's what Paul is saying. He's not just reiterating that we all die because of sin. He's saying that, look, we all sin because we're spiritually dead. Why do you sin? Let me ask you this question. Did you become a sinner the moment you sinned or when you were born? When you were born. That's exactly what Paul is saying here in Romans 5, 12. You were spiritually dead and therefore you sinned. What's very interesting is we also see in verse 14 of, of Romans 5, and again in verse 17, Paul says death reigned. In fact, he says in Adam, death reigned. Why does he make that point that in Adam, death reigned? Because this death that he's talking about isn't just physical death, it's spiritual death. He's trying to explain why is it that everyone sins, all right? Let me give you another point. Third, if Paul wanted to say because, if he wanted to really translate it because, he could have chosen many other words. He could have used diati, hati, dia. He could have made it very clear because. He could have said it very clearly in the Greek, but he doesn't. He uses epiho, literally upon which. So why? Well, because he's not saying because, as our English versions are claiming. All right? Now, let me show you some evidence from the New Testament. This phrase, epiho, together, is in only five New Testament verses. Let's look at the evidence and say, is because the best understanding? First of all, turn your Bibles to Acts 7.33. Acts 7.33. We're going to look at that same construction, epiho, that's rendered because here. Now here in Acts 7, remember this is Stephen recounting the salvation plan of God for Israel and all people as he brings people through salvific history. Acts 7.33, talking about the event where Moses is at the burning bush. He says, but the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, does everyone see there the phrase on which? Does everyone see that in Acts 7.33? That's epiho. Now, would that make any sense, rendering that for the place because you are standing is holy ground? No. And what I would say to you is that epiho, because remember, that's how it's rendered here. Epiho is rendered because in our English versions. But in Acts 7.33, they rightly render it on which or upon which. Why? Because epi is a preposition. It simply means upon. The preposition is rendered which. So here in Acts 7.33, the idea is that Moses had a platform that he was standing upon, which was holy, namely the ground. Why? Because God was there. Okay, does that make sense? And just let me make one more point. In the same way, sometimes epiho can be used metaphorically as a basis for something. So bring that idea here. So death spread to all men, and it's on that basis that we all sinned. Why did we sin? On the basis of which we were spiritually dead. It's the basis of which. Does that make sense? That's how it should be understood. You and I sin because we're spiritually dead in Adam. Let me give you another example. Turn your Bibles to Philippians 4.10. Philippians 4.10. You're going to see that epiho isn't even translated here. 
by most of our English versions. I'm going to read to you the, Ling- the Lexham English Bible, where they actually do tra- translate epiho. Now, why am I laboring this point? I'm showing you how controversial epiho is. So difficult is it for English translators, sometimes they don't even translate it. So hardly should you and I be locked into this idea that because is the best translation. Philippians 4.10. I'm reading from the Lexham English Bible. Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have renewed your concern for me, for whom, epiho, also you were thinking, but you had no opportunity to express it. Now, does everyone see the for whom? Well, you probably don't if you have an English version. It's not translated. That's how difficult it is. So what I'm saying is let's not buy into the group think of these English translators and just buy into because. I'm saying upon which makes far better sense. Let's look at one more example. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Philippians 3.12. Well, we'll actually look at two more examples. Philippians 3.12. Just a few verses earlier, Paul says, not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, some of your versions, I think if you have an ESV, um, it'll say because, but most of the versions like the NASB, the uh, Lexham English Bible, the Net Bible, the NIV, the NRSV, They will all render it, I think, correctly, for which. Okay, why? Well, that was the reason he was laid hold of. Okay, so again, I'm just showing you that because is not an automatic when you see epiho. Let me give you one one more example, and when we finish this one, you'll have seen every example of epiho put together in the entire New Testament. So the question is, why are we locked into this because? That's what I'm trying to drive at. 2 Corinthians 5, 4, please turn your Bibles there. 2 Corinthians 5, 4. Now here, most of our versions do have because, but I'm going to show you, I don't think it's warranted. 2 Corinthians 5, 4. Paul says, for indeed, remember he's talking about the tent, the, the spiritual tent that we're going to head towards when we're dead. So this is about the afterlife. He says, for indeed, while we are in this tent, this body, we groan being burdened. Now here's epiho, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now notice because is the way it's rendered there, but here's how I would render it. I don't think because is appropriate. Let's render it on the basis of which. Okay, notice what Paul, I think, is saying. He's saying, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened on the basis of which, in other words, on the basis of us being burdened. Why? Because we're in our tent. We're suffering. On that basis, we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Do you see even there, on the basis of which, on the basis of being groaning in the tent, makes far better sense to me than does because. Yeah. I noticed I looked all these up in yeah. my old linear from when I was in Bible yeah. college. Every single time, 
<clears throat> the interlinear has it as much as. Yes, that's another way is of that. Is that a good way to translate it? In it as is. much as? Yeah, in as much as, yes. Yeah, they can be rendered that way. Um, I like to take it very literally. Uh, upon which? Upon which. Yeah, or, or the, the basis of which, yeah. And so in a sense, the wrong translation has almost backwards causation. Exactly. That's exactly right. Bob's hit it. What I'm showing you is the reason you and I all sin is because we're spiritually dead. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, let's read in context, and this will make more sense. Why is Paul saying that? Let's read the rest of the passage, and we'll finish with Romans 5. So Romans 5, 12, I'll read it with my translation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, on the basis of which all sinned. For, now here's his explanatory for, for until the law, sin was in the world. Now stop there. Why is he saying that? Why is he saying, well, sin was in the world before the law? Well, because we're all spiritually dead. And the idea is earlier in Romans 4, 5, Paul said where there's no law, there's no imputation of sin. But Paul is saying, wait a minute, even before the law, there was sin in the world. Why? Because you and I and every human being that ever existed back then was spiritually dead in Adam. To me, that's a far better understanding of the text. But notice it says, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now stop there in verse 13. Does that mean before the law of Moses, no one was guilty? No. It's simply pointing out when there was no law, there can be no transgression of that law. Nevertheless, he's saying sin was still in the world. Why? Because people were spiritually dead and they violated that which should be known even by the conscience. Yes, Brian. Because you held the federal view from the past slide, I think you're only being consistent in your interpretation of that word. Absolutely, yes. And you'll see as we proceed through this whole section, the analogy becomes even sharper because you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. If you're in Adam, you're spiritually dead. So what does that lead to? It leads to death. I'm sorry, we had a couple of questions. I realize, I realize we're almost out of time, but I'm not understanding what happened within the period from Adam to Moses. From Adam to Moses? Okay, so from Adam, Adam had a specific command from God, you shall not eat of this tree. He violated that. Then from Adam to Moses, you have much of humanity doesn't, that does not have a specific command from God. But what Paul is saying is sin was still there. And to me, what makes sense of that is in Romans 5.12, he said, look, spiritual death brought us to be all sinners. So even before there was a law that showed you can't do this and you must do this, people were still sinning. Why? Because they were spiritually dead in Adam. Okay? And um, if I could read Romans 4, I would do that. We'll do that next week and we'll hit that again. But very good, because Paul has to clarify something. That's why he's bringing it up. Let me just read to you Romans 4.5 real quick. Or 4.15, I'm sorry, it's 4.15. He says, for the law brings about wrath... But where there is no law, there is also no violation. Because he said that in 4.15, he has to clarify, wait, how were people regarded sinners between Adam, who had a specific command, and the law that gave specific commands? Well, they were born dead in their transgressions. Yeah, that makes the best sense to me of the context. So let's just keep reading for just one more minute here, and I'll show you verse 17. I'll leave there. Verse uh, 14, I'm sorry, verse... 14, yes. Nevertheless, he says, death reigned 
from Adam until Moses. Notice the phrase, death reigned, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one many died, that's the transgression of Adam, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man Christ Jesus abound to the many. So do you see it's one or the other? It's either Adam or it's Christ. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Now notice verse 17, we'll leave here. He says, for if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. What Paul is showing us very clearly is that death, that is spiritual death and physical death, it reigned through Adam. Why do you and I sin because we're spiritually dead in Adam. In order for us to be made alive, it's a work of the Spirit who enables us to believe so that we can belong to our new representative, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can live. If you're born into this world, you're in Adam, and you're spiritually dead. If you're born again, you're in Christ, and you'll live forever. Carly, you had something. Oh, I'm sorry. Christy. So regeneration happens, and then we're spiritually alive. Amen. Okay. So then if we're spiritually alive, why do we still sin? Yeah. Do do you remember last week I talked about before the fall, Adam and Eve could sin or not sin. After the fall, before regeneration, every person can only do that which is displeasing to God. Romans 8.8. After conversion... You and I are battling against the flesh, okay? But you and I can, again, sin or not sin, empowered by the Spirit, enabling us to do that which is pleasing to God. That's one of the grand points that Paul's making in Romans 7. Now, you and I are troubled by the fact that we still do sin. And that's why, remember in Romans 6, baptism is a picture. You're dead to those things. Paul's reminding us, act like you really are, Conditionally or positionally, you're dead to transgressions, live that way. But what happens beautifully is after our glorification, you and I will no longer sin anymore. So before the fall, could sin or not sin? After the fall, before conversion, only sin. After regeneration, we can sin or not sin. After glorification, we will no longer sin against our God. We will be like him and we will see him as he is. And so that's going to be the beauty of it. So this is a battle that you and I are in now as believers. The unregenerate don't battle, Christy. They fall in the mud puddle of sin, and they love it. When you and I fall into the mud puddle of sin on the way to salvation, it troubles us, and we repent, and we remove. And that's why John says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, right? So, yes. I'm sorry, so with that, we'll have to close in prayer. Let's just bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray for clarification in our minds about our sin nature. I do pray, Lord, that people would understand the scriptures and that we really are dead in Adam, that we really owe you all 
of our salvation, our regeneration, even a faith as a gift from you, so that all glory goes to you. We pray that you would implant that deep within us so that we may glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.